Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. Ah, welcome to episode number 10 of Music and Murder, the show that people literally kill or die to be on. And to all of you that thought that this show wouldn't make it, please make note that the fact that I just hit 50,000 subscribers with zero advertising. So yeah, that's how I handle shit. For my first episode in double digits, meaning episode number 10, I bring you a story of a poor little rich kid and his punk ass wannabe rapper friend. And this story is from Canada, eh? Real quick, I want to thank all of you for now making this one of the most highest subscribed true crime podcasts in existence. It's by no means in the top 10, but it is in the top 100 out of thousands, which is pretty damn cool, so thank you. I appreciate each and every single one of you. Oh, and by the way, I'm your host, Michael D. Keeney, and this is Music and Murder, the only true crime podcast without stupid fucking annoying commercials. Instead, we use music, and sometimes it's actually good, but not always, just being honest. Strap in and take a little ride with me, because tonight's Canadian case is a doozy. I swear, if it were fiction, you'd likely say this is dumb and there's no way that it could possibly happen. But it did. Now dim the lights, sit back, and let's begin. Making my way through the hood, sipping this yak. Niggas about to get blown with the Mac. Plug it, 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 it. Oh, plug it, 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 it. Riding around the block with a Glock, yo ass finna get shot. That's the silencer. That's the grenade launcher. I'm finna kill you. I'm finna drill you. And now you bleeding. They play it, they play it. When I shoot you in your neck, the noise gon' play. Tell me, have you ever wondered what it's like to kill someone? Like really, kill someone. Stop somebody's heart and watch their lights and their eyes leave their body. Well if so, you and Dylan Millard from Canada, eh, have a lot in common. Also, were you ever a horrible wannabe rapper that couldn't wrap your way out of a paper bag and wanted to know what it was like to kill someone? Well, if so, you and Canadian Mark Smitch have a lot in common. These are two of the most biggest and worthless fucking idiots that I've ever witnessed. Well, maybe except for Grant Hayes, the dumb fuck killer in episode one. And if you ever did want to be a serial killer, what would be your moniker? Or in other words, your nickname that the media would dub you as. Mine would definitely be the suspense killer. That way when I'm killing someone, they could say, the suspense is killing me. And then we'd both laugh and I'd kill them. But I'm not into murdering anybody, except like black widows and mosquitoes. So you can have that name if you'd like, I don't mind. So these two guys, trust fund baby Dellen Millard, and wannabe rapper Mark Smitch were an absolute 
bad, bad joke. A joke that I'm going to tell you for about the next hour or so. Of course, all due respect to the victims, I do not ever mean to make a joke about anyone being murdered, but still, these guys were as lame as they come. Maybe even lamer than they come. Hmm. Kind of like Joe Exotic, who by the way still hasn't killed anyone, especially Carol fucking Baskin. And by the way, I'm not accepting any of his calls during this episode. He threatened the lives of all my listeners on the last episode, so I'm going to just let him cool off for a bit. Now in 2006, at a party in Toronto, Canada, two dick-faced idiot sociopaths meet. 21-year-old Dellen Millard and 19-year-old Mark Smitch. They're both extremely high on ecstasy, cocaine, and of course alcohol. They hit it off very well because you see, Smitch was a drug dealer and Millard was a rich trust fund drug user. Now when they met, Smitch rapped for Millard. I mean, he said stupid words that he called rap. Here, let me play you a clip so you can hear this guy. Air quote, rap. Yes. It's like a freestyle session with no lesson, no question. I'm killing you in possessions. It's mine. I'm a killer. Check my design. Mountains I climb and throw you off too. Dangle you from the roof. True motherfuckers know I leave you blacked up and blue bruised. Who's who? Blues clues. Tell the cops anything and then you die on the news. Peace, bitch. You're a deceased kid. Fuck with me. Say 10. The genius. The genius. Wow, I absolutely have no words to explain how that clip makes me feel. So anyway, moving on. So Millard and Smith became fast friends and drug associates. And we now jump into a little time machine and we travel at warp speed to 2012. Now it's here that we find Millard's father's airplane maintenance business, Millard Air, coming into some financial problems. Millard and his father lived and worked together, and Millard began seeing the company's revenue decline to the point that his father, Wayne Millard, had to begin pulling out his own personal money to keep things afloat, which deeply concerned Dellen because, after all, Dellen is a sociopath, and this was his inheritance that his dad was spending, so this definitely stressed Dellen out. And also at the same time, a woman, 23-year-old Laura Babcock, who Dylan had been having sex with on and off since 2008, was starting to make his life a little difficult because Laura and Dylan's actual current girlfriend, 24-year-old Christina Nuja, were battling over Dylan and starting a lot of drama because after all, he was rich as fuck. And from what I hear, chicks kind of dig that kind of thing. We will dive into this love triangle from hell that basically turned into the Bermuda Triangle after this cute little song by Ghetto Boys. It is called Mind of a Lunatic. Be right back. I know that is promised to me. Flashes, I get flashes of Jason. 
entire society. He's a he's a he's a, he's a paranoid who's a menace to entire society. Looking through a window, now my body is warm. She's naked, and I'm a peeping tom. Her body's beautiful, so I'm thinking rape. Shouldn't have had her curtains open, so that's a fake. Leaving out of house, got the bitch by her mouth. Drug her back in, slam her down on the couch. Whip out my knife so they can scream I'm cutting. Open her legs and commence the fucking. She begged me not to kill her, I gave her a rose. Then slit her throat and watch her shake till her eyes closed. Had sex with the corpse before I left her. And drew my name on the wall like Helter Skelter. Run for shelter, never crossed my mind. I had a gay drug, a nade, and even a nine. Dial 911 for the bitch, but the cops ain't shit when they're fucking with a lunatic. Another innocent victim of this homicidal maniac. Maniac, maniac. Another innocent victim of this homicidal maniac. I sit alone in my four-cornered room staring at candles. Dreaming of the people I've dismantled. I close my eyes and in a circle appears the images of sons of bitches that I murdered. Flashbacks of bodies being fucked up. Once I attack, I'm like a pit on the way, just going for guts. But used to die when I'm full of that fry. I be having when I'm high, so I say fucking just let bullets fly. Like I said before, score faces my identity. A homicidal maniac with suicidal tendencies. I'm on the violent tip, so you'll get a grip. And bitch come equipped, ain't taking no shit. So here comes a lunatic. My girl's getting skinny, she's strung out on coke. So I went to her mother's house and cut out a throat. Her grandma was standing there, she was screaming out brand As she reached for the telly, I put the blade on Granny's ass Went to the back and grabbed a shovel Now Granny's on her way to meet the devil Pulled out my 38 and ain't nothing bitch A cop says, Freeze, motherfucker. bitch suck my dick I said, die motherfuckers as I blasted Something clicked in my head, visions of bodies in plastic The scent of bug shots and human flesh Pigs dying from bullet wounds to the chest No sheriff's gonna take me on the road Dark as fuck And let his pistols explode Fuck that cause I ain't to die So I reloaded my Uzi And fired up another fry It got me crazy as fuck A raging psychotic Full of that angel's dust The cops had the place surrounded Hunting for a way to get out I found it Innocent bystanders were watching Set an example I popped one Let me go, goddammit, Scott Free All of these motherfuckers coming with me All of a sudden the shit got silent I remember waking up And in an asylum Being treated like a troubled kid My shirt was all bloody And both of my wrists were slit Think it's as harsh as ain't as harsh as it gets No telling what's bigger thought of In the mind of a lunatic Maniac, 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 maniac. I can't quit Same maniac, same maniac Maniac November 1st, 1966 A damn fool was born with the mind of a lunatic I should have been killed But sister fucked around and let me live Now I develop a criminal behavior Fuck with me And I'll slay your ass Beyond recognition shit Your dental records couldn't prove your identity, bitch I beg your pardon, I'm talking to Borden You never find a motherfucker So save your milk cartons Cross the line, your ass is mine I don't give a fuck if you're nine or nine of daisies you want to know what makes me click my psychiatrist said i got the mind of a lunatic
Oh, don't you just love those little children songs? Me too. You know, I was just thinking about our cancel culture, speaking of little children, and how everyone is offended about every fucking thing. You can't make fun of anyone's weight, color, gender, or anything except for one tiny thing. And I mean literally one tiny thing. Dudes with tiny dicks are still open season. I mean, nobody in the world is going to defend a guy with a tiny dick, not even him. But luckily I'm here, and I'm starting a movement, and that movement is called Tiny Dicks Matter. Just kidding, they don't. At all. My apologies to all of my little dick listeners, but nobody will ever care about people making fun of you. Just a fact. Anywho, if you want to get your music on this show or be a guest on this discussion portion of the show, hit up my IG. Since nobody really goes on there, it's a ghost town. There's like 200, 200 followers, whatever. Um, people do listen to the show. They just don't give a fuck about my IG for some reason. But my IG is music underscore murder underscore podcast. Or you can email me at murdercast at mail.com. I would love to hear from you. And send me a link or two. I'll play it if I like it. And yeah, I do only play music that I like. I'm like a cat. I do whatever I want. So speaking of little dicks, back to our show, which is about two tiny dick Canadians, eh? And one actually is a serial killer named Dylan Mellard. So little dick Dylan had enough money to turn that four inches into ten inches. So he had two women fighting over him, or at least starting drama over him. The year, once again, was 2012. And since 2008, Dylan had an on-and-off sexual thing going with a lady named Laura Babcock, who had a pretty rough life. She was an escort, and she was known to indulge heavily in all the healthy things that escorts usually like to indulge in. And I know, I know, I know, there are a few that really are working their way through school. But they usually have other people still buying all of their drugs while spending that money on school. So, and by the way, if there's any strippers or escorts working their way through school that are listening, they have other things that can get you through school like student loans and grants. Don't know if you ever heard of that, but yeah, student loans and grants. But I know, sucking dick and fucking weirdos on coke is much easier. I just still wanted to let you know that there are other ways to get yourself through school. Now Laura was 23 and she already had a lot of mental issues as well, which is very sad. She had depression, bipolar disorder, and suicidal tendencies, which I definitely am not making fun of. And no, I'm not talking about the band. Laura didn't even like Pepsi. I'm simply giving you the facts as I read them through my research. I actually feel horrible that she had this kind of lifestyle. In all seriousness, it's a rough life, and one that nobody should ever be involved in. Now here in 2012, Dylan was suddenly in love with a lady named Christine Nuja, who was 24. Dylan was 26, and he had the entire world by the balls, even with a teeny tiny dick. Because why? Well, he had millions and millions of dollars, of course. And of course, he had a lifted truck as well. And you know what I mean, ladies? Word of the day, compensation. Hmm. Now we get to the fun part. We get to invade their privacy and read their text messages because the police department and detectives made that possible for us. And for the record, guys, 
don't ever, never, ever, ever, never text a woman anything that you don't want the whole fucking world to see. Because at some point, they will screenshot that shit and blast it all over social media. No matter what you say and try to explain, her and her friends will burn you at the stake no matter what. Like a fucking witch. So, just don't. Just don't. Say no to drinking and texting. So let's begin with a text from Christine Nuja to Laura Babcock that happened on February 26th, 2012, basically 10 years ago to this day. It reads like this. Hey Laura, happy birthday. It was a year ago today that I slept with Dellen. Laura then replies, That's fine. I slept with him just a couple of weeks ago. Now first of all, if that slipped by you, they obviously used to be friends because Christine knew Laura's birthday and her phone number. Second of all, she actually fucked Dylan on Laura's birthday. And third of all, Laura's reply indicated that her and Little Dick Dylan were still hooking up even though Christine and him were actually in an air quote, real relationship. Which means that Dylan was sticking his little dick in both of these young ladies concurrently. And remember we went over what that means? Concurrently means at the same time. So Christine, of course, called Dylan and gave him an earful for fucking Laura, even though it was her that started the whole dramatic conversation. Gotta love a drama-loving bitch starting shit and then whining about it when the drama doesn't unfold exactly how she wanted it to. That's the great thing about drama. All of a sudden, shit can go a million different ways. Hmm. So after Christine and Little Dick Dylan talk, Dylan then sends Laura a text that reads like this. Laura, this is Little Dick Dylan. Okay, 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 so I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But here it is exactly. You are harmful to me. Please do not try to contact me until you've made some huge leaps of self-discovery. As I said before, good luck with life. End quote. Laura then sends a text to her friend Andrew, and the text says, Yeah, Dells is definitely not a fan of me. He told me that he told Christina when he slept with me last. Erg, these people, they cause so much unwanted drama for me and bring me into it. Now, what's wrong with all that? Well, police records show that Laura told Christina via text message when her and Dellen last hooked up. Not Dellen. So wait, people lie? Wow, I never knew that. Next, I'm going to find out that the Easter Bunny isn't real and uh, it doesn't really lay chicken eggs. And if that is true, don't tell me. I'm really trying to dumb myself down so I could be a part of this brand new society that we have. This brand new world. Keep me in the dark and tell me what to think. Yes, I get it now. And I'm already feeling offended about literally everything, so I'm fitting in perfectly. So after a lot of back and forth drama that last about two months, I believe it was two months, on April 17th, 2012, Little Dick Dellen sends Christina a text explaining what he was going to do to take care of this Bermuda love triangle. The text from Dellen to Christina says, and I quote, Don't you worry about Laura anymore. I'm going to take care of her for good. First I'm going to hurt her, excuse me, first I'm going to hurt her, and then I'll make her leave. I will remove her from our lives, I promise. 
End quote. Spoiler alert, Dylan most definitely does keep that promise. Remember, he has a tiny dick, and the lifted truck just wasn't enough to compensate, so he had to keep his promises to help overshadow his shortcomings. By the way, not everyone with a lifted truck has a small dick, but from what I hear, a lot of them do. So in June of 2012, just a couple of months later, Laura Babcock was completely homeless and still working as an escort, or as we call it where I'm from, a stripper that does extras. Laura was doing the best that she could and trying to make things work out. She really was. She also had a dog named Lacey that she was still caring for because besides the fact that she was a stripper and she was homeless, she was a good person from what people said. You know, life kind of dealt her a shit hand. I have a lot of respect for anyone going through bad times that still makes their pets a priority. And I have zero respect for people that take their pets to shelters and put them down just because life gets rough. Pets are family and they should be treated accordingly. Most of you would have been aborted if your mom had just put you down because it was an inconvenience. I sure as hell know that I would have been. Now during this time in 2012, Laura and Dylan were talking more than ever and likely fucking more than ever as well. Dylan's little tiny dick was getting a lot of action between Laura and Christine, and God knows how many other women that were into big bank accounts, big trucks, and little dicks. Dylan and Laura were texting and calling each other literally close to 100 times a day during this time. However, on July 3rd, 2012, Laura's phone ceased all activity. Although Dylan didn't text Laura anymore, he did however text Mark Smitch. At 7.30 that same evening, July 3rd, 2012, he texted Mark Smitch and told him, and I quote, I'm on a mission. Be back in one hour. Be back in, he put a number one hour. And on that note, I'll be back in a few minutes. Here's some actual real old school country. This is the song that made Chris Stapleton famous, but I'm not playing his version of it. Because although most people think that he did write it, Chris did not write this song. This is the original version of Tennessee Whiskey, written and sang by George Jones. And this song was released in 1983, basically 40 years ago. I do like Stapleton's version better, but for all of you hipsters out there that think you know real music, this is real, original, old-school, vintage country music. I used to spend my nights out in a bar room Liquor was the only love I'd known But you rescued me from reaching for the bottom And you brought me back from being too far gone You're as smooth as Tennessee whiskey You're as sweet as strawberry wine you're as warm as a glass of brandy And 
In all the same old places Found the bottom of the bottle Always dry But when you poured out your heart I didn't waste it Cause there's nothing like your love To get me There's some real country for you. Not bra country or hip hop, but real country that all the new artists sing about but never come close to emulating. Not even me. Old school country is just a magical entity that exists for people who have a desire to indulge in something vintage and timeless. Unlike auto-tune corporate bullshit that plagues most of our air quote country stations these days. Not talking any shit, of course. Okay, so when we last left off, it was July 3rd, 2012, and Dylan was seeing two women. One was 24-year-old Christina Nuja, who he was in a real-life open relationship with, and the other was 23-year-old Laura Babcock. Funny thing about Christine and Dylan's open relationship, Dylan was the only one that considered it an open relationship. And Christina and Laura did have a lot of drama, but that didn't keep Dylan's little rich dick out of Laura. But on July 3rd, 2012, it did make him stop talking to Laura altogether. Because you see, that's the day that Dylan murdered Laura. He killed her. All activity on her phone and everything stopped. And Dylan sent a text to his rapper buddy, Mark Smitch, and told him, quote, I'm on a mission be back in one hour. Now remember Smitch was a horrible rapping drug dealer and a thief and him and Dylan became fast friends that would go out and do dirt together. Smitch needed the money and Dylan, well Dylan needed the excitement. He'd always told people how much he admired serial killers and how he'd like to know how it was like to kill someone, to stop somebody's heart and watch the light go out in their eyes. And we all know about Mark Smitch, pretty much every rap he made was about killing someone. Which is fine, as long as you have some talent and can write. I mean, I like ICP, Ghetto Boys, Twisted, etc. But Mark Smitch was just an evil and hateful person with zero talent. He was also a follower. So when Dylan told him he wanted to kill people for real, Smitch was all in. So in that he actually moved into Dylan's basement in 2012 and helped Dylan plan 
or rather plot, to kill Laura Babcock. And they made a pact, a pact to kill others as well, which they did keep. Now, right after Laura was killed, Dellen, and I'm saying just killed because we don't know exactly how she was murdered, because Dellen did something that no other killer that I have ever researched or even heard about has ever done. Dellen spent $15,424 on a mobile animal incinerator. That's right. This motherfucker literally purchased a rolling cremation machine. He purchased it right before Laura was killed on July 3rd, and it was delivered to his house on July 5th, which means that they bought this thing literally to put her dead body into. Now, Dylan also had a mechanic named Schlotman. In May of 2012, there are text messages between Schlotman, the mechanic, and Dylan. And Dylan is asking him about drum barrels because he wanted him to build an incinerator. But after Schlotman built it, Dylan went ahead and had Schlotman order a real one in his own name, which was actually kind of brilliant on Dylan's part. That's probably why the Toronto Police Department weren't able to put two and two together. Because remember, Dylan and Laura are texting every day until July 3rd, but then all communication between the two ceases. And literally two days later, Dylan buys a fucking body incinerator. You don't have to be some kind of prize-winning detective to put that together. I mean, okay, yeah, it just kind of pisses me off that nobody was able to see this okay so this is some soprano mafia type shit right even better because it's it's mobile so you can literally drive it anywhere so you don't have to even move a body or store a dead body you can actually take it to wherever a dead body is i have to give it up to little dick dylan he had a brain i mean no matter what you have to give him credit for not renting a u-haul and driving a body all the way across the united states to try to feed it to alligators. Yeah, you all remember episode one, right? But still, Dylan and Smitch were still worthless piles of shit. But they did have some big dreams of becoming superstar serial killers. So after the body incinerator was delivered to Dylan's house in Toronto, Canada, A, him and Smitch burned Laura Babcock's body in it at Dylan's property, well, on Dylan's property and they threw Laura's phone in the lake, which is where many speculate that Dylan killed Laura, likely from a gunshot because little Dick Dylan just wasn't the type of person who could kill anyone with anything else, especially his hands. That's out of the question. If you, if you get a chance to see this guy, yeah, you're not gonna see him kill anything with his fucking hands. Now, when the police questioned Dylan, his good buddy Smitch provided a nice little alibi for him, and this wasn't the last time that Smitch does this for Dylan. I know I keep beating episode one into the ground, but the similarities. Mark Smitch actually wrote a song, if you can call it that, about what him and his friend Dylan did to Laura Babcock, a short, petite, 23-year-old girl that probably could have beat the shit out of both of them if given the chance. Now this is a little rap that Smitch performed while Dellen recorded it. Again, Smitch wrote this about killing Laura Babcock, throwing her phone in the lake, 
in burning her dead body in the $16,000 mobile animal incinerator that Dylan had his mechanic Schlotman purchase. The recording's a bit rough, but it is better than the performance. Trust me. The bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lay on some ash and stone. Last time I saw her was outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find a phone. Find a phone? What? What? Find a phone. If you go swimming, you can find a phone. Find a phone. Find a phone. You can find a phone. If you go swimming, you can find a phone. Bitch, lay on some ash and stone. Oh my God, you have got to tell me that there's some record label A&R people listening out there. I mean, this guy has street cred if you want to sign him. Although he does brag about killing petite women because he's a bitch, but maybe there's a demographic for that. I, w I wouldn't put anything past this new world that we live in. Now, after they burn Laura Babcock's body, they decide that this little incinerator that they bought is definitely exactly what they needed to keep on killing people. I mean, no body, no murder, what is it? No body, no murder, no jail, right? Just ask Scott Peterson, he'll tell you. I know Lacey and Connor did wash up after he was literally already in trial, but their bodies didn't change anything that was gonna happen to him. The media and that big loudmouth Nancy Grace burned him at the stick before he even had handcuffs on. He was already guilty. So, yeah. So Dylan and Smitch's new snack for their incinerator, which was now powder-coated and had the name The Eliminator posted on the side in big red letters. I mean, the fucking balls on these two little scrawny bitches, right? Hit up my IG at music underscore murder underscore podcast if you don't believe me. And while you're there, follow the show and the show will follow you back. It's that easy. So their next target was Dylan's own flesh and blood. That's right. If you're into true crime, you probably already guessed that from the first segment. Dylan, of course, had to kill dear old dad because, well, dear old dad was squandering off Dylan's inheritance. And remember, Dylan had a tiny dick, so he really seriously needed that money to buy more lifted trucks and drugs so he could keep the women around. So they do it. On November 29th, 2012, they shoot Wayne Millard, Dylan's father, in the head, and they make it look like a suicide. And the rocket scientists that we call the Toronto Police Department buy it hook, line, and sinker. Because of course, Mark Smitch told the police department that Dylan was with him, and Dylan told them that he was with Smitch. And Smitch didn't lie. He just didn't tell the popo that he was with Dylan while they were shooting Dylan's dad, literally, in the head. In fact, they literally shot 71-year-old Wayne Millard dead ass in his left eye. Who in the fuck kills themselves by shooting themselves in the left eye? Oh, it totally must be suicide, eh? Now let's go eat some donuts, you hosers. Now, here's the real kicker. They, they shot Dylan's dad with a gun that Dylan purchased legally in his own fucking name. Not talking bad on the Toronto Homicide Division, but wait, yes, yes I am. I, I definitely am saying that they're a bunch of fucking idiots, yes. It's true. And the people that they killed after that shouldn't, or the person that they killed after that shouldn't have never died, because Dylan should have been caught. 
I mean, this is this is like police 101. You don't shoot yourself in the fucking eyeball with your son's gun. Uh, just, yeah. I just don't. I, I, nah, nah. Now, during this time, the Eliminator is just sitting and collecting dust. And these two idiots are realizing that they live in a place where they can literally get away with murder no matter what. Because even though they should have been caught twice, easily twice, they got away with it. Now, the date is May 6th. 2013 and the dynamic idiot duo decide to find their next victim via Craigslist. They call up a man named Tim Bosma who was a hard-working 32 year old man trying to sell a truck. Dylan and Smitch reply to the ad and they ask Bosma to take a, a test drive with them before they buy it which makes sense right? Now they just take Bosma up the street from his home and they shoot him. Of course, after that, they take his body to Dellen's property and put him in the good old Eliminator. And no trace of Bosma was ever found. Well, on their property, it was never found. More on this in a, just a few minutes after this song from yours truly called Paris. I released this in 2012 and it's not on anything where it can be purchased. But if you'd like a free MP3, email me at murdercast at mail.com and no everybody says murdercast at gmail.com no it's murdercast at mail.com and if you'd like to get your music on this show i would be more than happy to play it and i'll send you a copy of this song if you'd like one this was back in the rock days in my musical history hope you dig it
Dylan Millard, the serial killer, once broke a world record at the age of 14 for being the youngest person to fly a helicopter and a fixed wing plane solo on the same day. He has a tattoo on his left wrist that says ambition. He was born a talented, smart, and spoiled millionaire that everyone thought had the world by the balls. But first, he killed 23-year-old Laura Babcock, and then his own dad, 71-year-old Wayne Millard. And then, on May 6, 2013, he killed Tim Bosma. After him and Smitch acted like they wanted to purchase Bosma's truck that he had for sale on Craigslist. On May 9th, Bosma's wife held a press conference in hopes that it would help find her husband. Here is that press conference in its entirety. I don't know why, but it really makes a murder seem real when you hear the press conference. My name is Charlene Bosma, and Tim is my husband. He is my partner and my best friend. He is the love of my life and the father of my child. I would like to thank the media for taking the time to meet us today. The last few days have been very difficult for myself and our families. This does not feel like real life. This only happens on TV and in movies. It does not happen in real life. As you know, I watched my husband drive away just after 9 o'clock on Monday night. He smiled at me and said he'd be right back. And I have not seen him since. You were all aware I saw the two men that took my husband. You've already been provided a description of these two individuals. I ask you, if anyone if you see anyone that closely matches the description of these men, to please call the police. You've seen pictures of Tim and of his truck, so please, if you see Tim or the truck, please call the police or call 911. Over the last two days, the outpouring of support from family and our friends, our churches, and from the Hamilton community has been beyond overwhelming. People have shared the missing persons poster all over Ontario and they continue to do so. We have had so many volunteers helping us and I cannot thank them all personally, but it means so much to me and to our families that these people, some of whom we do not even know, they take time from their lives to help us find him. Our faith in God is keeping us strong and has been getting us through the last few days. We ask the community for their continued support and for their prayers. My husband, Tim, is a loving father to our beautiful two-year-old girl, and she needs her daddy back. His parents need their little boy back. And all of our brothers and sisters want their brother back. We look forward to being able to putting our arms around him again and telling him how much we love him. 
We hope and we pray that today is the last day of this nightmare. Tim is blonde and has wonderful blue eyes. When he gives a big smile, which he does frequently, he has dimples in his cheeks. He has a dimple in his chin, the same dimple that our daughter has. He loves to tell jokes, and if you ask his nieces and nephews, they will tell you what a huge pest Uncle Timmy is. They are all looking forward to the next big water fight with Uncle Tim. One of the kids the other day said that Uncle Timmy has been stolen. And I cannot describe it better than that. Tim has been stolen from us. Tim's world revolves around our daughter. And I know that she is number one in his mind right now. I ask, and I beg, and I plead to whomever has my husband to please let him go. Please drop him off somewhere. Or make an anonymous call to the police so we know where to find him. It was just a truck. It is just a truck. You don't need him, but I do. And our daughter needs her daddy back. So please, please let him come home. So we need him to come home. And may God have mercy on you. The press conference worked. Just a few days later, the police found Bosma's phone, and they saw the number of the burner phone that was the actual phone that called Bosma to inquire on purchasing his truck, which means that the phone belonged to his killers, or at least his captors. The phone also had another number on it. The number belonged to a man named Igor Tomenko. You see, Dallin and Smitch tried the same thing with Igor just a few days before killing Bosma, but they got cold feet when they saw Igor because Igor was huge and they were scared of him because remember, they were bitches. Even though there was two of them and they had a gun, they were still scared of him. So the police went and they interviewed Igor and he gave them Dylan and Smitch's descriptions to the T, which included Dylan's ambition tattoo. The police then did another press conference, giving out the description of Little Dick Dylan and Smitch the wannabe rapper. And just like that, they got a ton of calls, they searched Dylan's property, and they found Bosma's truck on Dylan's mother's property inside of a trailer. Bosma's truck was completely stripped, but it still had gun residue and Bosma's blood inside of it. After the dynamic idiot duo was arrested, police later finally realized that they had killed Laura Babcock and Dallin's father. I guess when you buy a fucking body incinerator, even the Toronto Police Department can figure out that you've killed some people, right? As soon as they were arrested, 
Mark Smitch turned into Mark Snitch. Get it? Smitch? Snitch? Yeah, we all saw that coming, right? And said that it was all Dylan. And of course, Dylan said that it was all Smitch. Dylan's mom, who had separated from Dylan's deceased dad many years prior, had his back through the entire trial, telling the police and everyone who would listen that her son was innocent. You gotta love a delusional mother. They're great. After the trials, Dylan and Smitch were both found guilty of all three murders, as they should have been. Dylan was sentenced to 75 to life, with no possibility of parole. And Mark Snitch, I mean Smitch, got 50 to life with no parole. He now spends his days rapping in the prison and getting his ass kicked every time he does to this day, because nobody wants to hear that fucking voice. Christina Nuja still writes Dylan and states that she still loves him, which she should. I mean, he did kill for her, right? And that wraps up episode number 10 of Music and Murder. Please leave feedback and subscribe if you like the show, and please be completely silent about it if you don't. Just kidding. Tell me I suck. I really don't care. Till next time, always remember, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. Because these fuckers are everywhere, and they are, they are out to get you.
simple life. 